Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Now we get to talk with John Sales. He's directed more than two dozen films and written a dozen more, starting with Return of the Secaucus 7. My favorites are City of Hope and Passion Fish, both with Angela Bassett, and Lone Star with Chris Cooper, Chris Christofferson, Matthew McConaughey, and Elizabeth Pena. His screenplay for that film won a dozen awards. He's also written five novels. One of them, Union Dues, was nominated for a National Book Award, as well as a National Book Critics Circle Award. One more thing, he's a MacArthur genius. And now he has a new novel out. It's called Yellow Earth. John Sales, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm, I'm a former genius. It's <laughs> run out in five years. Okay. Well, this is a story about what happens when shale oil is discovered underneath an Indian reservation in the North Dakota Badlands and outsiders descend. It's clear from this book that you know a lot, not only about how fracking works, but also about tribal politics, about cops on the Great Plains, about the lives of long-haul truck drivers, about even about how to run a pole dancing establishment, and about the medication for sick cattle. Clearly, a lot of research went into this book. Uh, Let's start there. Yeah. One of the nice things about doing research now is that um, you still can go and track people down and talk to them if they're still alive, if it's a contemporary book. But the internet, if you want to know how to skin a muskrat, there's at least three people who have made (laughs) totally acceptable and sometimes very good videos uh, about how to do that. So there's a lot of virtual research that you can do where you actually see pictures as well as, you know, hear about things. But I, I also, once I establish a character, I'm interested in what characters do for work, what the ins and outs of that work is. And so very often you proceed as as if you were going to start a pole dancing establishment <laughs> and you, you know, find the magazines that sell the bar stools and the rugs and, you know, the black light and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and it gives you ideas. The locals in your story are offered of course, the chance to get a lot of money by selling the mineral rights. You you obviously have your sympathies, and we have the same sympathies, but the book is fascinating in part because somehow you give a fair hearing to the people we consider the bad guys, the oil companies and their shills. 
How did you do that? How hard was it for you? It, it wasn't hard. I mean, people have their jobs. Uh, they make their peace with it one way or the other. Um, the landsman, who the landman, who's the guy who who buys leases, he's not a salesman, but he actually is selling the company that he represents. He's talking people into making money. If he does it well, they'll make less money than they would if if they waited three weeks or three months or whatever. Um, and somehow he has to have made his peace with that. I really actually have no problem with any kind of drilling. It's just that those companies should pay for the mess they make. And and one of the things that, that happens very often, and not just the oil industry is, these days, is that uh, people subcontract. And they subcontract, and then that subcontractor subcontracts that. And what they all know is when the company gets small enough, and let's say it's, it's the people who are supposed to do the remediation after you leave the place, uh, they may do half the job and walk away and then dissolve the company. And then, well, there were three companies in between us and that person who didn't do their job. Therefore, we're not, you know, we don't owe anybody any money. And that, that kind of cynicism is, is something like I am against. If you frack, you have to know what the cost is and you have to pay the cost. Let's talk about a couple of the characters. Your salesman, Sig Rushmore, great name. He's kind of irresistible. He's the one who's trying to get both the ranchers and the Indians to sign off on, on drilling. Where did you get him? Is there a Sig Rushmore somewhere? Uh, I'm sure there is. Uh, you know, the, the landman is, is it's, it's a classic salesman. It's somebody who is charming, who actually does like people, but can deal with the fact that he may be selling them short. And, you know, he always says, I don't think we should think of this as a, a you and us situation, but as a we situation. And, you know, he, he's very good at his job. And by charming somebody in a ranch out somewhere, he can walk away having saved his company a half a million dollars just by having them sign at a certain bonus and a certain moment and a, at a certain percentage. When if, in fact, they got cold feet and waited four weeks, they might get twice that. And the other thing he's tremendously good at is research. Yeah. I mean, everybody wants to come in loaded for bear and he, you know, the county courthouse knows who owns the land. They know whether those people have retained the mineral rights, which you don't always do when you, you buy land. He knows when it turned over, when somebody's spouse died, all that kind of information. So he, he seems like, oh my God, this guy's been reading my mail. You know, there's no way around this. He's got the goods on me. And so I probably should just do whatever he says. A lot of us know people who are good salesmen, but most of us don't know much about Native American tribal politics. Another one of your great characters is the head of the, the Three Nations Reservation, Harley Kildeer. He's a man who wants the big bucks. Where, where did you get him? Many reservations have some kind of mineral rights on them, and so there were a bunch of situations to um, to choose from. Uh, we were trying to make a movie that I had written called To Save the Man, which was based on the uh, what was going on at the Carlisle Indian School in 1890. And in the course of that, uh, we spent a lot of time in Indian country. Uh, we went to places where, you know, there would be gatherings of tribes that actually had some casino money or, or mineral money and were looking for investment opportunities, looking to raise money. And in the course of that, I, I met a bunch of Native American lawyers 
who, who work for reservations and started to hear stories about, you know, the complications of these things. Many reservations, um, the land ownership because of the, the Dawes Amendment, it, the tribe doesn't own it anymore. In fact, much of the land on a reservation may not be owned by people who are enrolled in the tribe. You know, so you can have these checkerboard situations where, you know, a third of your reservation is actually owned by outsiders, white people. And then there's this other complication that, you know, many reservations will have a tribal police force. But with the way the law works is they can pretty much only arrest people for Indian on Indian crime. So if somebody from the outside comes in and does a crime against somebody who's enrolled in the tribe, they have to call the nearest county sheriff from one of the white counties around them. And there may be five counties around them. And those sheriffs may have their hands full with the people who came along with the drilling in their town. And in your book, the white sheriffs often say, let them go. Well, they, they have to prioritize. You know, they have to say, is this serious enough? I got my hands full. One of the things about Yellow Earth is this is based on a, a small city in North Dakota that uh, had 15,000 residents and in six months later had 45,000 residents. That's an incredible invasion. And when that happens, a few people do very well because they, you know, they sign an agreement and lease the, the mineral rights and, you know, they don't suffer too much for, for what they get. Other people make more money for a while because the price of everything goes up and Walmart and McDonald's may have to pay twice as what they were before so they don't lose their employees. And then other people like police and teachers may be on fixed incomes. And they're not making any more, even though the price of everything is going up and they don't get any more help. So that sheriff doesn't necessarily get the money to hire new deputies. And all of a sudden there's, you know, three times more people there. And most of them are young men without women with a lot of cash in their pockets. Yeah, let's talk about the uh, young men without women with cash in their pockets. Would you agree with the reviewer who said that one of your themes is, quote, toxic masculinity? Yeah, I'd say when you get when you get that kind of feeding frenzy, you know, my my previous book, uh, Moment in the Sun, uh, starts during the Yukon Gold Rush in in 1897, and you had the same kind of situation there, where if there were five percent of the people up there were women, two and a half percent of them were prostitutes, and the other were washing clothes and and looking over their shoulder nervously. There is a culture that the town may have had, and that culture is just a tidal wave hits it, and the culture changes overnight. So this is a story about rural America, the a flyover state, terra incognita to us uh, coastal dwellers. Even those of us who've driven across North Dakota, instead of flying over, don't really know anything about the people who live there. We know Right now, all this is Trump country, although the book is set in the Obama years. Uh, you make it clear that we have a lot to learn. Yeah, I, I, I you know, certainly I've been to the town that I'm writing about. I hitchhike through there, which you actually get a better hit on a place if you hitchhike through it and spend a couple days here and there. And, and I don't think people are polarized in the same way. I think it's a state that was losing its young population. It's a state where there have been booms before and they've all busted sooner or later, uh, whether it was, you know, buffalo pelts or bonanza farms or whatever. Mm -hmm. And there's not really a whole lot of manufacturing up there. 
And so it's like a lot of parts of the country is what is our future? You know, what, what, what is going to bring income in? And so when a, a phenomenon like this happens, you can't expect people to say, oh, no, you're going to upset the earth, you know, with your drilling, go away and don't give me that, you know, quarter of a million dollars. And, and I think the political thing, what's interesting about that, and, and I deal with a lot of that in, in, in Yellow Earth, is that it's uh, about cultural divides, not necessarily ideological divides. And there's been an effort to tie those two things together, to make culture into ideology. Well, we've talked about a couple of your characters. There are lots more. Mm-hmm. Uh, one reviewer wrote, no character is minor in Sales's world. That's true of this book. It's true of all your movies, too. You have the same sympathy and kind of detailed specificity for every one of them. And there are so many characters uh, here. How do you do that? Well, first of all, I don't think you can tell the story of the, the phenomenon without seeing it from a bunch of different angles. I was an actor. I was in two different productions of, of Mice and Men. I played two different characters. When you walk into that bunk room as one character, you see and hear certain things that the other character doesn't. And so I, I, I'm used to having that, that feeling of, well, what does this character want? What's he after? You know, what's he going to see? He's going to be totally unaware of some of the other things that the other characters are. There are various ways of making money up here. Well, if you're not a roughneck on the deck, you can make money as a truck driver. You can make money as a pole dancer. You can make money, you know, selling coffee, uh, you know, on a kiosk. If you're a young woman from, you know, I think there were a couple of young women who came there. They literally got a phone booth sized kiosk and sold coffee to truckers in the morning and they made $100,000 in a year. Yeah. So, so that mosaic approach, I think, you know, gives you a better idea of, of the whole phenomenon. And it's not just a, a black and white thing. And there's an awful lot of gray areas in it. The book is divided into four sections, exploration, stimulation, extraction. And the last has the intriguing title, Absquatulation. Have I got that right? Absquatulation. What does that mean? Uh, that's a word from, uh, I don't know if he coined it or not, from, from Mark Twain's era. And absquatulation means retreat without honor. <laughs> and, and usually when there is a bust, people leave and they, they leave their mess behind. There's no money in it anymore. Pack up what you need, what you don't need, just leave it lying around. And then there are the prairie dogs and the woman scientist who studies them, the prairie dogs open the story. How come? Prairie dogs are a cornerstone species. You know, they, they're they not exactly endangered, but their habitat is endangered. One naturalist called them the, the chicken McNuggets of the high plains because <laughs> uh, a lot of animals depend on eating them to, to survive. And I wanted something that wasn't just landscape to represent the ecology. Um, so I have a character named Leah Nilsson, who's a field biologist, and she thinks, I'm up here, I'm going to do my little study on prairie dogs. I'm in the, you know, the back of beyond. Nothing is ever going to bother me here. People drive by on the highway. They barely notice me. And then all of a sudden, she wakes up one morning, and there's yellow police tape all around her coterie of prairie dogs, and she discovers there's going to be a drill platform put there. And and because there's some 
you know, uh, recognition that you shouldn't just plow them under. Um, somebody comes along and says, oh, yeah, I've got to gas them first, and then we can plow them under. <laughs> I wanted to ask you to read one of my favorite passages. This is the one about your a truck driver, Buzzy, who's driving a big a truckload of drill pipe, hundreds of thousands of pounds of drill pipe from Texas to North Dakota. Yeah, Buzzy's a guy who's... Uh, he hasn't been in a truck for a long time. He's kind of wired. He's nervous because he had an accident the last time he was in a truck four years ago. And um, he's just heard that there's big money to be made up in the Bakken range. And this is at the end of, of his kind of no sleep, 30 whatever hours of driving on the road. Buzzy grabs one of his mixes at random and jams it into the slot, cranking the volume up as loud as he can stand. But it's just noise. Because the only song he wants to hear, the only true one, is another from his old man's era, Johnny Paycheck, before he shot that fella and made his trip up the river. Take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. My woman left home and she took all the things I've been working for. Buzzy grinds through to daybreak, crosses the ND line and cuts west on I-94, and suddenly he's got company. More flatbeds hauling casing, three low boys carrying thumper trucks with their extra-wide tires, 30-ton winch trucks, tankers, a convoy with various pieces of drill rig dealt out between them, little knuckle-boom cranes and their big brothers, coil-tubing trucks, fracking-pump trucks with their huge rusty muffler units pounded on top, and Kenworths and Peterbilts and Freightliners and old beat-up Max. And by the time they all take the U.S. 83 exit at Bismarck, it's a goddamn army on the move. Buzzy getting his third wind from the energy of it all around him till they slow to a crawl on the four-lane and he realizes he's already late to the party. Just look at all these people. Twenty miles short of the Three Nations Res, he sees a new painted sign for Gill's Park and Snooze by the side of the road, but it looks to be only some open space in a field behind a row of storage containers with cots lined up in them. Be sleeping in the rig for a smell. Buzzy cranks his window down and calls across to the white-bearded character driving the drop-deck semi in the next lane. Hey, buddy, it always like this. This time of day, sure, you knew. Started up from Houston yesterday morning. The old man lifts his drill baby drill cap and salute. Sonny, he smiles, welcome to the Wild West. John Sales, his new novel is Yellow Earth. John, thanks so much for coming in today. This was great. Thank you. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers hands off 
my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.